Hi, it's Arjun with a video update this week. It had been my attention after last week's sort of deep dive post on our ROC framework, how we think about long, medium, and short term to write some follow-ups, applying that to an oil price framework, individual companies, subsectors, and so forth. But as they say, the craziness of the sector got in the way. And in very short order, we've had an LNG permit pause from the Biden administration, uh, we've had Saudi pausing their capacity expansion from 12 to 13, or at least so they say. Uh, and then we've also had a little bit of a pause in Tesla's share price that I'm going to work in here and what it means for sort of the EV outlook. And uh, that'll be the focus of this week. So let me start with the Biden administration LNG permit pause. And I have to say, uh, I wrote a seven-part tweet or whatever it's called now on Twitter X last weekend, and it has 120,000 views. Now, Typical tweet for me would have somewhere between one and maybe four or 5,000 views. So it's, you know, whatever, 20, 50, 100 times uh, the typical tweet. So there, there clearly was some sort of interest in this topic. And I really wanted to go through some of the takeaways. I think the first is they often talk about an industry view here. There's no such thing as a singular industry view. If you are a buyer of gas, that would be a domestic manufacturing company, a petrochemical plant, even maybe some power gen you're going to favor the pause. Uh, you're not going to want LNG to be exported. Um, if you have an existing LNG permit and terminal, especially in the Gulf Coast, uh, you may not be so excited about all the future competition uh, that is coming. On the other hand, uh, if you're a buyer of gas in Europe or Asia, I think you're going to be against this pause. You know, And so, uh, and, and clearly, if you're a competitor country, which I'll talk about, uh, you're going to favor this pause. If you're a Wall Street person like myself, uh, we generally dislike CapEx. So at least prior to building a plant, Wall Street tends to be sort of, as a general comment, against capital spending and therefore in favor of the policy. There's no such thing as an industry view. It depends on your perspective. There's been a lot of focus on what this means for Europe and security supply, and I get all those questions. I'm going to say the sort of over-focus on Europe, uh, it's overstated. And it's been my theme, goodbye Europe, hello rest of the world, with the key point that Europe's mature as a region. Um, when you look at their energy policies, which I am generally not in favor of for the most part, I think they're at real risk of deindustrialization. And I think there are real questions on what is long-term European gas demand. It's almost certainly headed down. I think the question is how quickly. Now, I'm also not a believer that green hydrogen is going to be there by 2030 or whatever made up year uh, they're depending on. And I think how, therefore, does that gap get met? It's not a trivial risk that in some future year, and it could be a few years down the road, that Russia gas doesn't come back to Europe. You know, as so I think basing your business model on an outlook for Europe is going to be a challenge if it involves major capital spending. So again, goodbye Europe, hello rest of the world, a key theme of ours. I think the view on Asia has generally been underappreciated, and that has been a core theme of our lucky one billion versus the other seven to nine billion people on earth is Ultimately, energy is going to be all about for the next 10, 20, 30, maybe 50 years. How do you meet the energy needs of the 1.4 billion in India, the 1.4 billion in China, and the 1.3 billion in the rest of Southeast Asia? That's before we get to the Middle East and Latin America and Africa and some other regions. I've thought that when I look at Asia, especially China, India, rest of Southeast Asia, that combination of coal and renewables, that's your either low-cost domestic resource or your otherwise security supply resource and renewables. The best thing about solar and wind, yes, there are challenges with critical minerals uh, processing, and a lot of the, the panels and stuff currently come from one region, China. 
But once it's up and running, it's a domestic resource. And I think that does give it an advantage to LNG. I thought LNG, Asia is going to be more price dependent. But the idea that Asia is going to solely depend on coal and renewables, I think we've learned. And I think other countries like Japan that have developed is you want a diversity of supply. So nuclear and LNG will be part of that mix. So when I look at this permit pause and what it can mean for Asia, if I'm an Asian country, I certainly would favor an overbuild, if you will, of US LNG and to have inexpensive LNG be part of my mix. And I think there is going to be debate of how much LNG versus nuclear come into it, but otherwise there's going to be a whole lot of coal and renewables in Asia. I think the final point is the competitor countries. Uh, they all have to be in favor of the pause. And again, this has been one of the big challenges uh, with this being announced. Is there a need when the US has had a massive expansion in LNG capacity already to not wonder how much more should we have? What does it mean for domestic manufacturing? What does it mean for domestic pet chem and power gen? What does it mean for Henry Hub prices? What does it mean for emissions and all these kind of topics? Yes, all those things are legitimate things to be worried about. But the way in which this went about, the way this was announced, real, real problems with how that came about. We do not need, no one needs LNG to now be part of the partisan debate. It is ridiculous and it is deeply unfortunate. How do we not know yet that we need all of the above energy infrastructure, all of the above energy sources and technologies, and that the world benefits from everything we have to offer? which is oil and refined products that come from shale. It is natural gas and petrochemicals, but also some LNG. It is all the technology and innovation, the Teslas of the world, electric vehicles, all the new technologies that are being worked on in Silicon Valley and in Houston and Austin and elsewhere. We need all of it. And the idea that we're going to make this part of the partisan battle, deeply, deeply unfortunate. And if we're going to now introduce permitting issues here, do we really need that? If we need high-speed transmission lines, how does introducing new sources of delay and permitting in general help anybody or anything. Uh, and if you're a competitor country, I am unconvinced that they are clearly better than us on any of these core metrics like the environment or climate or labor. If that's one of the rationales for the pause, you cannot tell me Russia, maybe in some future year, Venezuela, or any of these places. are better. We look at the Middle East, there's a broader range of outcomes. I think some of those countries do, do well, some less poorly on some of these other attributes. But the idea that the U.S. is not going to be competitive, come on. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a win for our competitor countries. What are the implications of this permit pause? Certainly from an LNG perspective, I thought this previously and I continue to think it as a general comment, bigger is better. You need the balance sheet, you need to be diversified, and you need to be able to be opportunistic. And diversification can mean you're not just an LNG, you have oil and other things uh, around the world that you care about. It could also mean from an LNG sourcing standpoint, you have projects in different countries, you have ships, you have regasification terminals, you have a balance sheet to where you can have a trading business, which is often these attributes are associated with either the super majors or other sort of really large companies that might want to be involved. There are exceptions to that. There can be obviously smaller companies that have had successful LNG strategies, but as a general comment, uh, I'm going to say bigger is better. I will say this issue of future export restrictions, I'm not sure this is partisan. I don't think it's Democrats necessarily that are purely, well, let's keep it all for ourselves. In fact, there's quite a bit of sentiment on the other side of that. So while the exact nature of a permit delay probably would not have been a, quote, Republican thing to do, I think when you look at whether it's gas exports to Mexico, perhaps LNG, perhaps refined products, I don't think you can rule out 
especially in an environment where in some future period, we either have a short-term or longer-term increase or spike in energy prices, that it would only be Democrats that do this. I, I think, unfortunately, uh, export restrictions might be a, a bipartisan issue. I will say, elections matter. And I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Here at Super Spiked and at Verdun, we, I hate partisan politics, absolutely despise it. And this is in no way a partisan comment. What I'll say, though, is when it comes to energy policy um, and the outlook, I think there is a fundamental choice between big government versus limited government solutions. Do you want big government setting mandates, picking winners, and using some combination of tax and subsidy to favor some industries over that? Do you want that? Or do you want an environment that emphasizes markets, is technology agnostic, that does might perhaps try and create some incentives, but ultimately uh, lets industry figure out what works and what doesn't work and under what time frame? And there, there's no all or none. If you're a small government person, which I am, I will admit to that, I'm a small limited government person. I'm not for anarchy. I'm not for no government. And when you look at externalities, when you look at things like the environment, when you look at sometimes competition being stifled, when you look at issues around trade, uh, there is a role for government to play. So it's not about having no government. Uh, but I think there is a fundamental choice to be made here. I am certainly unconvinced that things like the Inflation Reduction Act and things like, let's just call it an EV mandate, is going to lead to the kind of climate solutions that the supporters purport to say that is the reason we do these things. I don't believe in we should have 100% of this and we should only emphasize that and we need to make sure this doesn't happen. I don't think governments can dictate that. I think they can figure out how you deal with some of the externalities and that is the role for government. I, I will say this, when it comes to the point of the US industry and climate, I think there are a lot of companies, certainly the larger ones, but increasingly some of the smaller publicly traded ones that I'm familiar with that are doing a good job on proactively and in response to pressure, dealing with things like methane and flaring and venting and changing out pneumatic devices and having a real plan for scope on emissions. I, I think there is both real progress and good faith efforts to deal with that OGMP 2.0, if I have the acronym right, all good steps in the right direction. I, I think the, the strength and the challenge in US industry is there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of companies. And it can often be that lowest common denominator that does set the image uh, and there is a need, I think, to for industry to get to where it's bulletproof on this stuff. I think, unfortunately, it's not. Not today. And again, I'm going to, I am in favor of a lot of the actions taken by some of those individual companies. The question is how you can get all of industry under a framework where there's just no debate on this stuff. To me, there's no question that US industry will outperform other countries on a range of both profitability, cost of supply, but also environmental health, safety, and the environment type metrics. I think we have to ensure that all of industry is there, and it may not be at this moment. Wherever you are on that big versus small government, let's focus more on climate versus affordability and energy and these other, wherever you are on that, it must be a unifying driver that displacing coal, especially in the developing world, it is the opportunity. It's the opportunity for American and Canadian energy uh, it is the opportunity for LNG. It's the opportunity for renewables. It's the opportunity that comes with permit reform of not creating new permit delays. How is this not the overwhelming unifying goal? And I'm not talking about US coal plants. I'm talking about India, China, and the rest of Southeast Asia. They are on track to continue to build coal to match and provide baseload and offsets to volatile intermittent renewables. They're so going to build a lot of renewables. It's going to be backed up or supported by coal. 
how are we not unified in saying we need to figure out how nuclear and LNG becomes part of that mix and how American and Canadian technology and resources help motivate these countries one way or the other to not build out. For, how is that not unifying? Why are we creating division within our own country by having these clearly politically driven permit pauses? Even if there might be some underlying reasons to, to, to answer some questions, why are we doing that? Let's be unified on displacing coal, trying to motivate the developing world to not use as much of it. So let me shift to the Saudi capacity expansion pause. And I want to say it was about a year ago, might be a little longer, where Saudi announced they were going to go from 12 to 13 million barrels a day of, of total capacity. And I'm going to say, I'll keep it short, they've never sustained more than 10 and a half. So my personal view of Saudi capacity is 10 and a half. But I'll just say they were looking to grow whatever that capacity number is by a million barrels a day. And I, I think Rory Johnson on, on commodities context, I'm going to give him the winning tweet where he said, you know, no move has ever unified everyone's prior view more than the Saudi news. So uh, if you're an oil bull, hey, less capacity, it's good. If you're someone concerned about demand, long-term or short-term, hey, less capacity means demand's weak. If you're a climate or environmental person, hey, they're finally uh, on board with the IEA's don't invest in new fuel strategy. One that I personally laugh at, but hey, it's a view out there. Um, this, uh Listen, there's a lot of uncertainty in why this happened. There's probably a lot of political reasons driving it. What I want to focus on is what does this say about short versus long-term oil prices and what Saudi policy may or may not be focused on? And so a, a couple of things to just level set here. Uh, the white line is spot oil prices. The purplish line is uh, five-year forward or long-dated prices. You can see the super spike bust era where you know, short-term prices was kind of volatile around a long-term number that broadly speaking was about $50 a barrel. The range might have been, you know, mid 40s to 60, but uh, generally 45 to, you know, generally about $50 a barrel. And then since COVID, there's been an explicit effort on the part of Saudi and OPEC plus to manage inventories so that we continue to stay in backwardation, meaning spot prices, the current price is higher than the long-end price. And they've succeeded. So long-end prices have moved up from the sort of $50 average to about $65 a barrel, a $60 to $70 range. That happens to match, if you look at returns on capital, with about a almost a 10% return on capital for industry on average today. That may change going forward, but today, 65 to 70 gets you your long-term price. So therefore, let's just call it a logical long-term price. Yet spot prices through that inventory management have remained well above that. And I think the question is, does the Saudi capacity cancellation or pause, we're going to use that phrase, signify that they are changing uh, this sort of emphasis on backwardation. I, I, we'll see. I, I, I think what is clear is this environment where the long-term price has been cost of capital and the short-term price has been well above it. We've gotten a whole bunch of shale production from that uh, to where it is, as it was previously, taking a huge chunk of the growth rate in demand. Demand is still growing, but supply is keeping up. And so I'm not here to predict and guess what they're going to do. I think it does support what has been my view, which is that we are in a super vol macro backdrop. I have not used the super cycle language. I am constructive on demand. Again, I don't think there's any year, let alone decade, where we know that we're going to have peak demand. But on the other hand, I also am unconvinced that shale is definitively mature and that we have to right now, we might in the future, but that right now, you have to figure out what, what what's coming next. And so- we will see. I think it remains the right framework. Super vol, 
one has to be prepared for a shift in what has again been a strategy of backwardation. I'm not calling for that. I'm saying there is a new form of uncertainty that's crept in here. Uh, and I think it's bears watching. But again, we've still not seen this this environment we know has led to thus far continued shale growth. Um, so let's let's keep that in mind. Final point or, or topic I want to talk about has been what I will call the pause in Tesla's share price. And again, let me start with the disclaimer. Uh, we are definitely, for sure, not going to start making stock price recommendations on Tesla, least of all. Um, and I want to acknowledge that, in my opinion, as someone who does enjoy following sort of Tesla's uh, bull bear battle on Twitter, the bulls have won. It's not a close call. I mean, Tesla's gone from nothing and selling barely zero cars or only tens of thousands to, I, I want to say it was 1.2 million cars last year. And they've gone from, you know, a negligible market cap, 50 million dollars starting point to at, at times a trillion dollar company or at least six, seven hundred, eight hundred billion dollars, larger than any current traditional energy company. That is success. When we look at the new energy space, this is one of the winners and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Elon Musk, whatever you think of them, specifically deserves, deserves credit for driving it. We have Tesla, we have BYD in China, and I think defy anyone to name a third winner that we know about today. But what we are seeing signs of is that we're sort of at peak Tesla, at least in this go-round. And so when you look at what this means for oil demand, and you look at the EV hockey stick forecasts, I think you have to be really careful about applying that to all regions. And so when you look at China, um, there was a huge motivation for China, which has gone from zero oil imports to 11 million barrels a day. They're at four barrels per capita, well below the 13 of the rich world, well below the 20 we're at. They're at their middle income status. They definitely want to escape middle income status and get to rich country status. That implies a heck of a lot more oil demand growth that they undoubtedly do not want to be dependent on. So they're going to do everything in their power to motivate a shift to electric vehicles. And of course, they have a style of government and approach that motivates that to happen. And so the China EV hockey stick is showing signs of coming true. And we take that seriously. Um, and what does that mean for gasoline demand? As an example, will be will will we be in our first plateau of gasoline demand? So much of maybe coal's first plateau. I want to say in the '80s, and coal since has made two additional plateaus and reached all-time highs. That's for another video. But it is possible that Chinese gasoline demand will become pretty saturated here going forward. That doesn't mean that's going to be true of other regions. And so I think the U.S. is going to be very different in terms of how EVs develop than China. And Norway's the third case. Very different. They've actually had a lot of success going to almost 90% EVs or something like that. Africa is going to be different than either of these places. India is going to be different than China. It might be more two and three wheelers versus four wheelers in India as a starting point. Uh, the point being, this call that everyone gets to have their EV high, there's no way it's true in the US. And you can start to see that in the Tesla stock price. You're seeing it in the results and statements from GM and Ford and other auto original auto manufacturers. Um, the idea that America, as it's currently set up, is going to be sort of 100% EVs by 2035 or 2030, I'll take the under on that penetration rate, and I'm going to take the over on oil demand. Um, and, I, and again, just, you know, this yellow line is my really lame job at technical analysis, but it is a sign of a stock that is sort of post-peak, um, and none of that is disparaged. I've driven a Tesla car for eight years, love it, absolutely love my Tesla, and I have huge respect for the massive success this has been. It's just the point about the implications for oil demand. So some common themes and takeaways. 
if you're an investor or an analyst as I am, um, if you're a CEO or a board member or a management team, you often use logic uh, to evaluate things. Not so helpful sometimes. Politics will trump logic often. And unfortunately, and we're seeing it here in the United States, rhetoric is trumping leadership, and we should never forget that. It is a source of our Super Bowl macro backdrop, which is still our core view. We have policy developments around the world. It is part of it. It's not about wishing for smoothness. It is about embracing the volatility uh, and figuring out how you can take advantage when stuff inevitably happens. And to take advantage, it is fortress balance sheet. There is just no substitute to having as much cash as possible and as little debt as possible to both insulate you from the stuff that does happen and you don't know when it's going to happen, to providing optionality to lean in during the times where the cycle is either below normal or other stuff happens that creates something for your company to do. So I do want to end this video on a personal note. Uh, and, and I want to just sing the praises a little bit of Twitter X and my personal journey. Uh, you know, so I was, again, happily retired, uh, serving on some boards and advisory roles post my Goldman career from 2014 to 2020 when COVID hit. Oil goes to minus 37. I, I, I'm usually not someone who gets quote unquote bored, but I did log on to Twitter for like the first time in like four years. And it just so happened that at minus $37 oil, a message popped up from David Shepard, the FT reporter who have come to like saying, hey, oil's at negative 37. Would love to know what Super Spike guy thinks. It was, it was that type of tweet. And I actually responded and said, I think minus 37 is ridiculous. Um, Super Katango is inherently unsustainable. It was that kind of message. And it was fun to be re-engaged. So I was enjoying doing Twitter. I did it for a few months. Increasingly, the tweet threads was a lot of fun. Um, but it's limiting. And it led me to starting Substack. And so the neat thing about Substack is longer form. It's pretty easy to write a post. They help you with the distribution. And I was been really pleased and pleasantly surprised at how people have signed up and have wanted to engage from a lot of my former clients and executives that I know to some new people, policy folk, and so forth. And I've loved being on Substack. And I appreciate the ethos of Substack, where I subscribe to a lot of other authors, some of who are former journalists, some of experts in their field, or people with a range of views where it's a place where you can discuss ideas. Um, it doesn't mean everything you read that you 100% believe them or they're right, but there's not that mainstream media, here's what we want to tell you, and here's what we think you need to know type culture. That point about having a question and attitude, you get that on Substack doesn't mean that every person that posts is a great person. That's not the point. It is that freedom to express ideas, which I'm going to differentiate from freedom of speech, which is a different topic. I love the question attitude that comes from Substack. And the Substack ultimately led to Veritin. And so I was having so much fun re-engaging and writing again. And as my children, for whatever reason, want to go to college and leave our family, I feel like we really had a great time raising them. But no, I, I don't blame them. It's, it makes sense for a child to grow up and go to college and, and leave the family. Um, I've unretired to Veritin. All started from that one tweet from David Shepard on Twitter. And I'm back on Twitter. So actually, when I joined Veritin, I, I probably died down my Twitter intake. They went through some changes. They got rid of a Mac app that I used to like. But I'm kind of back in. I love the spaces. Um, news breaks first on Twitter. And I love the engagement dialogue and discussion. And um, I just wanna, just wanted to give Twitter X, as is now I now call it, I don't like X, Twitter X, a shout out and thank you.